Welcome to HeyYA Extra Credit. Every week, opposite the main HeyYA podcast, we'll bring you a short-form podcast either as a book discussion with a beloved YA author or look at excellent backlist YA books for your TBR. I'm Kelly Jensen, recording on June 11th, 2020. This week's mini episode will be a change-up from the more traditional backlist recommendation podcasts. I've invited a guest to join me to talk Backlist Queer YA Titles, and I am so, so excited to have her today. Welcome, Leah Johnson, if you want to tell everybody who you are and about your amazing debut YA novel that just hit shelves. Oh my gosh. Hey, y'all. This is so, so exciting. I was just telling Kelly, this is full circle for me. I've been a fan of this podcast since before I even had a book, knew how to write a book, thought about writing a book. I am Leah Johnson, the author of the novel You Should See Me in a Crown and the forthcoming Rise to the Sun. You Should See Me in a Crown came out a week and two days ago. So it still (laughs) feels very strange that it's a thing that exists in the world that people can tweet me about now. It is about a girl named Liz Lighty, whose only dream is getting out of her small and small-minded Midwestern hometown and going to college. When her financial aid falls through, she has to figure out another way to fund school. And so she runs for prom queen for the scholarship that's attached to it. This is tough enough for a wallflower like Liz, but it becomes even more tough when she starts to fall for the competition. We just found out yesterday it's an indie bestseller, which is really exciting. So I'm like, I'm freaking out. Like this is, (laughs) I'm I'm still kind of like floating. I haven't really slept this week either. So I'm just gonna preface this with that warning. Oh, man, I loved this book. Like the first time I saw the cover, when it was revealed, I was like, oh, this book looks awesome. You know, it covers really serious topics, but also it's a rom-com. So it's super funny. And there's so many great pop culture references that make it really, really like of the moment in a way that I think is super relatable for readers, both those who are teenagers as well as those who, like me, are not teenagers or anywhere near being a teenager anymore. And reading it was just such a delight. Like it was one of those books that Eric would call a hug in book form because mm-hmm. it just makes you feel good to read it. Well, thank you. That means a lot. It um I reread it when I got my hardbacks a few weeks ago and I was like, you know what? I'm happy. This is interesting. What a strange sensation to feel happy in this weird pandemic moment. Right, right. Yeah, so I'm glad it's bringing joy to other people as well. Me too. Sometimes, you know, those heavy and hard books, and I know we're going to talk about some of those today, are vital. We need them. But also we need the light stuff too. And it's just so nice to be able to point to this brand new book and say, you need something light and something enjoyable. This is a great pick. And you're not going to walk away being sad that you read it at all. Thank you. Thank you. You know, a lot of people are like curating these anti-racist book lists. And so a lot of the fiction that gets recommended is fiction that revels sort of in Black pain. And I think that those books are really valuable and they have a lot to teach us. But in the same vein, I think it's important if you want to actively unlearn racism to engage with Black joy and Black freedom and Black liberation separate from trauma. And so it's a really exciting moment. I'm, I'm glad we'll get to talk about a couple of these books, but uh, it's a really exciting moment to be writing like Black, joyous, queer YA. For sure. And there's just not enough of that either. Yeah. And I, I hope that your book and another author who's been doing it recently a lot is Claire Kahn. She mm-hmm. has two or three right now. And I hope that 
you guys are going to blaze an even wider path for more of these Black Joy books. I hope so too, Kelly. Let's hit our first ad and then I will let you start with our backlist recommendations. Our first sponsor, our only sponsor for the episode is TBR, Tailored Book Recommendations, Book Riot's personalized reading recommendation service, which now has gifting. Is your favorite book lover hard to buy for? Give the gift of TBR, Book Riot subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Choose from plans that allow your loved one to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email as a one-time gift or year-long subscription and sit back while our bibliologists do the rest. When your recipient redeems their gift, they'll complete a profile to tell TBR about their reading preferences and what they're looking for, and they'll even be able to connect their Goodreads account. Then we'll match them up with a bibliologist who will handpick recommendations just for them. Gifts start at $15, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so when you treat someone's shelf, you're supporting an indie too. Visit mytbr.co slash gift to sign up today. That's mytbr.co slash gift. And Leah, do you want to kick it off? We're going to talk about Backlist Queer YA because it's Pride Month and there's so much great Backlist stuff out there worth highlighting right now. Yeah, for sure. So my first title, I want to take it all the way back to <laughs> 2007. Ooh. Yeah, it feels like a really <laughs> long time ago. But like, when I imagine 2007 in my memory, it feels like not that long ago. But when I start to look at, okay, like, yeah, I guess it was, what is it almost two decades ago? Mm-hmm. Is that two decades? No, yeah. Leah, you're just really bad at math. Okay. Anyway, close, it's <laughs> close, though. No, it's close, though. Okay. I mean, like 18 years ago oh my gosh well all right at this no point, that's not right I'm, I also don't know how to do <laughs> and that's okay Kelly I was sitting here like man okay that's even worse than I thought <laughs> okay so we're taking it to the back of the back list this is a book called the god box by Alex Sanchez it's about a boy named Paul who is this really devout Christian. He has dreams of growing up and becoming a minister. But Paul's faith is tested when he has to confront the fact that he might be queer. A new boy moves into town who is openly gay and also openly Christian. And everyone has to ask themselves, is it possible for those two things to coexist? In this book, I did not read until 2018. So it was almost a decade, over a decade after the book came out. It was so deeply impactful to me in terms of my own coming out journey that anytime I think about crucial queer YA, I think about this book. There just wasn't enough conversation and still isn't really about the intersection between religion and sexuality in teen literature. And I think uh, this is not a backlist title, but the Hina Wars by Adiba Jagardar also does this really beautifully. And anyway, so it just was such an important text for me that I recommend everyone read it. I have not read it and I have not read any of Alex Sanchez's work. And he has like a tremendous backlist of queer YA. Yeah, this is we're talking legendary behavior, mm -hmm. like absolute like Alex Sanchez is one of the forebearers of queer way which is why i'm always like yes if you haven't read alex sanchez let's do it let's go all the way back and get into that catalog honey because <laughs> he really opened the door for so many queer people of color in this industry 
to come through and do this work. Now you're going to do the thing that Eric says I always do to him, and you're going to add a bunch of books to my TBR now. Oh, good, good, good. (laughs) My first pick is one that came out last spring, and that's The Grief Keeper by Alexandra Villasante. And this is a book about a teen girl and her younger sister who are seeking asylum in the U.S. from... El Salvador, where their lives are at great risk for a number of reasons. And those reasons come up. I'm not going to spoil what they are, but it's very, very clear that they need this asylum for life-altering reasons. And so when they make it across the border and are held in a detention facility, Marcel goes through an interview to get this asylum, but it doesn't go as well as she suspects, and she's worried that her request will be denied. So she uses a break in attention by the guards to bolt with her sister. And she and her sister are picked up by this woman who seems nice, who offers to help them get to New York, where they plan to meet a friend of the family who is going to help them. But the woman informs her she actually is there to present an offer to Marcel and her sister. This woman is a government employee, and there's this new procedure that they need a human test subject for. The procedure will do this magic, I guess is the best word to describe it, that will remove the traumas from somebody who is suffering and give them to an otherwise healthy person. So Maricel will be the participant, the person who will take the trauma on in exchange for her asylum request. And because she's so desperate, she, she takes the offer. There is so much in this book to unpack in the way that it talks about love and family, as well as immigration and race. But for me, the thing that really stuck out was this is a book about grief and specifically about the ways people of color are allowed to grieve or not allowed to grieve. So Marisol is taking pain on and she's taking the pain of a girl named Ray, who's a white girl struggling with grief. And there's just so much interesting, painful, really honest stuff in here about what the government, what the world more broadly thinks about people and putting them into spaces where they are seen as worthy of something versus less worthy. So in this story, Marcel is seen as less worthy and thus can take on somebody else's pain to relieve them because they have, you know, what are believed to be more important things to do. So trauma, there's a lot of trauma in here. But the thing that I also really loved in this book is that there's a really lovely queer romance. And it's powerful. It's I'm not going to say who it's between, but it comes up. You kind of know that it's coming. This is not like secret romance surprise at the end. Like you you see it building throughout. There's also this just beautiful relationship between Marisol and Gabby, her little sister. And Marisol has this incredible passion for language and learning new language. And she loves things like idioms. And it's so, so charming in a way that is not at all demeaning of her learning, but instead just she's so curious about the language. Um, And it it gives such a nice reprieve for the really heavy stuff going on in this book. Like I said, this one came out last spring, I believe. And I don't think enough people have read it. It's still so scarily relevant and timely. 
And that yeah. is The Grief Keeper by Alexandra Viasante. I don't know how this was not already on my TBR. It's checking all of my boxes. It's got <laughs> angst. It's got conversations about race. It's got a great romance. It's got beautiful familial relationships. I'm like, sign me up. What's the, <laughs> like, there's no hold up. Well, we're going to do this to each other the whole time, aren't we? Oh, good. <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> What's next? What do you have next? Yeah. So my next title is... This is kind of an epic love story mm. by Kaysen Calendar. I am a huge fan of Kaysen's work just across genres, absolutely legendary, once again, like paving the way, opening doors. But this is kind of an epic love story. It was one of the first queer YA novels I read, actually. And it was not until my adulthood that I started reading queer YA. And this came out in 2018. It's about a boy named. Nathan or Nate, whose childhood best friend comes back into the picture. And um, Nate, it's worth noting, Nate doesn't believe in love anymore. He's, he's having a really hard time wrapping his head around how people can buy into the whole thing because he's watching his mom, who's having a hard time dealing with his father's passing and he gets cheated on by his girlfriend at the beginning of the book. And so he's really going through it. And his best friend from childhood comes back into town, Ollie and Nate and Ollie stumble into a relationship. And it's just so sweet. He it's I, what can I say? It's like such a warm romance and it's messy. The kids are messy and they're flawed and they make, bad decisions sometimes. And I think one of the things that we rarely get to see in texts about queer kids, but especially queer kids of color, is that they have the space to make mistakes and grow. And I think Kaysen does this so beautifully in this book. And I love it. It has a permanent spot on my everybody needs to read this book list. <laughs> I have not read any of Kaysen's books yet. And I kick myself every time because they're sitting on my shelf and everybody recommends them. I just mm -hmm. haven't yet. I will. I swear I will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I also like I haven't had a chance to get to Felix Ever After yet, which mm. I'm really, really excited about. But as for like King and the Dragonflies and Hurricane Child, like these are middle grade titles and I, I don't read a ton of middle grade, but it's just um, they're books that I just feel like have to be a part of your shelf. Even if you haven't read them yet, everybody should buy them and support them so that Kaysen <laughs> gets to keep writing books. For sure. And Kaysen also has an adult fantasy series, if I'm mm -hmm. remembering. Queen of the Conquered, I think is yeah. one of them. It's like, it's an impressive range of books. Yeah, not everybody can do that. And by not everybody, I mean, most people cannot do that, me included, just jump <laughs> between genres and age ranges and mediums like I just I'm so impressed every time mm -hmm. Kaysen has a new book come out so yes this is kind of an epic love story <laughs> my next pick is like water by Rebecca Podos yes please have you read this one I have heard so many good things about it I haven't read it yet Oh, it's so good. So it follows a girl named uh, Savannah. She goes by Vanny and she lives in a small New Mexico town where everybody flees after graduation because they're afraid of being stuck there for life. And though Vanny herself really hoped to flee, 
She is sticking around after graduation because her father is sick and she needs to help him as well as help keep the family Mexican restaurant afloat. So she's there. All of her classmates have left and she meets Lee, who's a new girl in town. But actually, she doesn't meet Lee right away. She first meets Lee's brother and is super put off by him. or put off by Lee, rather. She thought Lee was really brash. She had this attitude, this chip on her shoulder. But soon, Vanny, of course, cannot get enough of Lee. And the two of them start to fall for one another. And Vanny is sort of surprised about this because she is used to enjoying physical fun with many of the local boys. But she is falling for Lee on a super physical and super emotional level. And the story explores what it is that Vanny really wants both in the place she's at and the places she wants to go and and that means both her life in New Mexico as well as her relationships what she wants it's a really fabulous and quiet book about sexual identity about the fluidity of sexual identity and it features a character who identifies as genderqueer that is Lee who throughout we refer to as she and female but learns preferred gender later on in the story. And this is part of Vanny's coming to understand her own sexuality. Both of the characters here are sharp. They're a little prickly. And like you said, they're allowed space to kind of be messy. And this is a really interesting point that's come up. It came up in the last Hey Extra Credit as well with Lev Rosen talking about queer characters who get to be messy and make mistakes and do things and, and screw up. And It's something I hadn't thought too much about before, but the more I look at the queer way I love and the queer way that I think doesn't get championed the same way other titles do, I think that that messiness is sort of underlying it. These are complex characters who screw up, who do things that you want to shake them for doing. And yet, like, that is what makes a character real and compelling. For this particular book, I also really liked this fear Vanny has that she might have the same genetic condition that her father has. And when she turns 18, she finally has the right to take this genetic test and find out whether or not she carries these mutated genes that her father has. And that element, I thought, was so unique and not something I've seen in very many YA books. In a lot of ways, this one reminded me of Little and Lion by Brandy Colbert. And mm, okay, that's a great comp title. Yeah. Well, part of it is Brandy does this incredible like layering in her story. She packs so much in there, and yet all the threads weave together. They braid so well. You're like, how is she going to do this? And you're like, why? Why am I asking that? I trust that she has this handled and this story did the same thing there's just so many threads and they all come together in ways that make the story so compelling and that is like water by rebecca potos okay all right (laughs) so oh my gosh this is gonna really take a hit on my bookshop account because (laughs) clearly i'm ordering that as well okay so my last backlist wreck just came out actually in January of 2020. Mm. It's called Black Girl Unlimited. Yes. Now, let me say this about Black Girl Unlimited. I want to preface this by saying I have not read this book yet. 
What? But my friend, I, I know. I have. <laughs> oh, okay. So good. We're trading off then. So my friend Farida recommended this, the author of the book Ace of Spades, which will be out next year, DM'd me on Instagram one day and was like, Leah, Leah, everything you're doing right now, stop doing it and read Black Girl Unlimited. And I was in the middle of revisions for my next book. So I couldn't stop everything I was doing because <laughs> Scholastic wouldn't have let that happen. But um, I'm so excited. This is next up for me. Black Girl Unlimited is about a teenage wizard named Echo. It takes place in Cleveland, which not for nothing, but any book that takes place in the Midwest uh, about (laughs) black kids in the Midwest, I'm automatically like, okay, I've bought into it. Mm -hmm. It's about a girl named Echo who lives in Cleveland, who is wrestling with a lot. She's bouncing between two different worlds. So she goes to private school, but she's from a background of poverty. And she's also traveling between two different worlds of the human side and the magical realm. She finds out she's a wizard and has to learn how to navigate those powers. And she does it with the help of other women wizards while also battling with real world issues of addiction and grief and trauma and poverty and sexual violence. And there's a lot being packed into this book. But if Farida's recommendation is accurate, which I'm positive it is because Farida's a genius, it is so beautifully written, so carefully crafted. Everyone needs to pick this book up, including me, who's looking <laughs> at it literally right now on my desk, wondering, Leah, why haven't you finished it yet? Great question. So yeah, Black Girl Unlimited, that is my backlist right. I loved it. It was so unique. The storytelling of the story was just obviously storytelling of the story. That's what storytelling is, right? (laughs) (laughs) But it was it was unique in a way I hadn't seen before. And it was like literally a magic story. But yeah, packed with really heavy stuff. My uh, next pick is one that goes way back as well. It's Lizard Radio by Pat Schmatz. So this one came out, I want to say in 2013 or 14. So it's been a lot of years since I've read this one. I wanted to talk about it and talking about it will require working with what I remember as well as giving the book description. So here's my take on it. And then I'll give like the formal book description of it. It's a dystopia and it's set in this near world with a powerful government that forces teens to be made into conforming adults. And it's here we meet Lizard, who is sent to a camp at a very young age. And her challenge is she doesn't conform to a gender. She IDs as female, has female pronouns, but the bulk of the story is about that gray area of being two things at once. So it's a book about gender, but it's also a book about all things, not falling easily into a binary, and about how all things are really along this spectrum. You aren't good or bad. You're not a leader or a follower. You're instead a little bit of everything, and it's how you choose to pursue and identify that matters, and it matters deeply to you as a person, as opposed to this binary idea of what something culturally believes you should be. So this is the description because it's going to do it a little bit better than I can do it from my my recollection. And 15-year-old Cavalli has never fit in. As a girl in boys' clothes, she is accepted by neither, bullied by both. What are you, they ask. Abandoned as a baby wrapped in a t-shirt with the image of a lizard on the front, Cavalli finds a home with nonconformist artist Sheila. 
Is it true what Sheila says that Cavalli was left by a mysterious race of Saurians and that she'll one day save the world? Cavalli doesn't think so. But if it is true, why is Sheila sent her off to crop camp with its schedules and regs and what feels like indoctrination into a gov-controlled society Cavalli isn't sure has good intentions? But life at crop camp isn't all bad. Cavalli loves being outdoors and working in the fields, and for the first time she has real friends. Sweet, innocent Rasta, loyal Emmett, fierce, quiet Nona, and then there's Sully. The feelings that explode inside Cavalli whenever Sully is near, whenever they touch, are unlike anything she's experienced, exhilarating and terrifying. But does Sully feel the same way? Between mysterious disappearances, tough questions from camp director Miss Machete, and weekly doses of kickshaw, the strange drug-like morsel that Cavalli fears but has come to crave, things get more and more complicated. But Cavalli has an escape, her unique ability to channel and explore the power of her animal self. She has lizard radio. Will it be enough to save her? This one has so much cool imagery and readers itching for genderqueer rep in YA. I think this is one of the first ones. And it's sci-fi, which is really cool because there's not a whole lot of genre queer books from the backlist. We're getting more and more, but this was one of the first, if not the first. And that is Lizard Radio by Pat Schmatz. Oh my gosh, that sounds so good. It was so different. I remember reading that thinking, you know, because this was back, this was before Simon, before Queer YA had a little bit more of a platform. And I remember thinking, this is such a weird book and yet so compelling and so different. And I haven't revisited it since, but I always think about these pre-Simon titles and think like, where do they hit now? Like, what, what books have taken their inspiration from these quieter, like, forerunners of the the category yeah like i said you know it feels like we're very much at the beginning of what queer ya is going to become and it's so exciting to see us building on these earlier texts that maybe got slept on that we can revitalize and bring back and pay homage to so i'm thrilled me too we're i think we're at like a really exciting time for queer YA especially there's been more and more of it certainly still not enough but more and more and we're seeing such a wide array of experiences and it touches on everything it touches on the trauma which is real but also books like yours touch on the joy which is also real and like you said interestingly whenever I see a black queer main character in the midwest like that's an auto read for me because also, being in the Midwest, like, one, there's not enough stories set here, but two, the stories that are set here still lack inclusivity. And that's just not the reality of all parts of the Midwest. Yeah. I think this area gets flattened, which is ironic because it is a very <laughs> flat landscape. But I think the narratives that come out of the Midwest often get really flattened by folks who are not from here, that mm. there's not a lot of nuance to our experiences. And it's like, even in communities where it is still really, really white mm-hmm. and really straight, there are always stories within those communities of people who are pushing those boundaries and redefining the binary and 
and subverting these ideas of what it means to be Midwestern. And so I'm especially enthusiastic about that. Midwestern lit for the win. Yeah. I think we can end right there. I don't have anything more to say because it's perfect. Oh, perfect. (laughs) So thank you to today's sponsor for making this show possible. You can follow me on Instagram at Hey Kelly Jensen and Leah, where can folks follow you and get to know your work? You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at by Leah Johnson, B-Y Leah Johnson, or on my website at also www.byleahjohnson.com. We're consistent with the tags. That's so good. That's so good. (laughs) You can find me everywhere. And my books are You Should See Me in a Crown, which just came out this week. And if you can, please buy it from your local independent bookstore. It means so much to keep our indies in business. And my forthcoming title is Rise to the Sun. It'll be out in 2021. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you to all of our listeners. We'll see you again next week for the main podcast. And until then, hopefully you've just added a whole bunch of great queer YA to your CBR. 